Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Westview Memorial Podcast. We appreciate you listening to another episode today when the pastors of our church uh, invite a wonderful guest to join us. Uh, and today we are greatly honored to, uh, have to welcome the Reverend Chris Ritter, who is the senior pastor at Geneseo First United Methodist Church in Illinois. And uh, Chris is a leading voice in uh, the Methodist, what I would say, the New Methodist Movement. He's on the Council of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. His website, peopleneedjesus.net, is a fantastic resource for anyone look, looking at current Methodist comings and goings. Um, it's a compendium, if you will, of uh, United Methodist renewal, church leadership, um, and I think also his sermons get put up there as well. Um, but it is the place to go for um, Methodist news that I turn to, especially during general conference season. So I so appreciate Chris, his heart for the church, uh, his, his, his gifts and leadership that God has called him to. So Chris, welcome. We're glad to have you with us here today. I think Pastor Jeff, I guess we're going to introduce ourselves though first, right? So Sounds good. If you don't know who we are, I'm Clark Schultzen, and I'm the Associate Pastor of Contemporary Worship and Evangelism at Wesley Memorial. And I am Melissa Lau, the Associate Pastor of Congregational Care and Missions. And I'm Jeff Patterson, the uh, Senior Pastor at Wesley Memorial Church. And Chris, it is great to spend this uh, time with you today. And uh, I know a lot of our friends and colleagues in Western North Carolina and beyond will enjoy hearing from you today. So let's, let's jump in. We'll make great use of our time together. Uh, I'll begin this with a couple of questions to you, uh, just to help all of us get to know you better. Some of us know you very well through your writings. I'm like Clark. I've uh, read your blogs for, for quite a while, and I'm greatly appreciative of the information that you share and the perspectives uh, that you share. But just um, tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris, uh, about yourself uh, in ministry, where you're at. What's, what's got you to this day? Well, thank you so much, Pastor Jeff. It's great to be with you today. I so appreciate the invitation to uh, join you and all the kind words that have already been spoken. Um, uh, it's great to, uh, to meet you all today. Uh, I'm, my name is Chris Ritter, and I, I serve in the United Methodist Church in Illinois, the Illinois Great Rivers Conference. And uh, I've served uh, First Methodist Church in Geneseo, Illinois, since 2009. And we're up where they make John Deere tractors. Some of you know John Deere uh, near Moline, Illinois. We're kind of a bedroom community for the Illinois, Iowa Quad Cities. And so uh, we're in farm country, uh, and and we uh, uh, serve a church. This is a point of reference. We have about 450 on a weekend before COVID. We're, we're really curious about how many we have now. Nobody's really sure right now. A lot of us are. Leading <laughs> <laughs> a church through all of that, and uh, been a general conference delegate a couple times, and just tried to really follow uh, what's happening in the United Methodist Church and our denomination as we I think everybody's looking for a new future right now and, and the shape of that. So um, uh, married to Becky, we've mar been married 32 years. We have four adult children who have not provided us any grandchildren thus far. So we treat <laughs> our, little, our little dog Dottie like a grandchild. And um, so- I'm in the um, same situation, Chris. Come on, guys. 
visit uh, North Carolina for uh, a couple times now and, and meet a lot of your pastors down there, uh, different speaking occasions and, and that sort of thing. And my wife and I uh, did some genealogy work, mainly my wife, and we both come from North Carolina. Our people right. migrated up here. And uh, I knew I knew I, I knew there was a reason that I liked Chris. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that's it. That's it. But they were German Lutherans when they were down in North Carolina. So they were, I think that was kind of before the Methodist days. But, uh, but yeah, we have North Carolina roots and uh, have had a chance to visit your beautiful state on different occasions. Yeah. And you, you also spoke at Lake Junaluska um, annual conference uh, a year or two ago. Were, yeah, that was during uh, your annual conference session. I think I gave a talk um, uh, about all these goings on in the Methodist Church, uh, which is my first time at Lake Junaluska. I always heard of that place and never had a chance to visit it. That was that was a, a, a beautiful thing. I was glad to meet a lot of you there. Uh, we, I remember that night well. It was one of our dinners, and um, uh, we, we had a packed house when you spoke to us that night. Mm -hmm. Uh, oh, great. Thank you for sharing some of that. That, um, that helps us get to know you better. One of my favorite questions, Chris, to ask people, um, what's feeding your soul right now? What's nourishing you right now? Uh, maybe a way to think about that question is, um, uh, what are some of the resources or books that you're reading presently? Or who are some of those people over the course of your life that's uh, nurtured you, mentored you? Yeah, that is a great question. And, you know, I think right now, uh, like a lot of people, I'm um, trying to find a healthy balance of life when a lot of things are interrupted. Uh, our church is just now later this month going to get back to in-person ministry. We've been on virtual only. So uh, I, I just, as a point of confession, the first two months of the COVID stuff uh, were not good for my soul. I, I wasn't doing well with all that. And uh, I tell you what, I was, uh, was not social distancing from the refrigerator whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> that, was, that was the only exercise I got. So I kind of decided uh, around Easter time, I can't do this. I've got I've to take care of my soul, my body, my mind, uh, and, just, and just reprioritize. So Scripture and prayer has been really important to me. Right now, specifically, we're going through as a congregation the Gospel of Luke. We started that the first week of Advent, and it's going to take us through uh, Easter, at least. And uh, so it's my favorite uh, book of the Bible, and uh, so I'm just really reveling in Luke right now. And the stuff that I'm reading um, has to do with early devotion to Jesus. You know, I kind of you got to kind of have to put yourself in seminary. You don't get everything you need in seminary. Uh, you know, you've got to be in charge of your own education, and we all have gaps. I, so I, I really uh, have been interested lately in early high Christology, where that came from, what it looked like, and so um, I'm. That's what I'm reading about, thinking about right now, and uh, so that's been that's been fruitful. I walk every day. That feeds my soul. My dog keeps me as my accountability partner <laughs> on that. We try to uh, eat low carb and walking, trying to just kind of do what I need to do to, uh, to get healthy and be healthy. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of, um, that's what's feeding my soul right now. Mm -hmm. Great, great topic. I love that topic. Uh, 
the high Christology in the early church. Uh, You're probably reading some of the authors I'm very fond of, the ones who show us that high Christology came very early. It did. Uh, It was not a late development, but Mm. it came very early. It was there in the beginning, uh, which is rather fascinating for a bunch of Jewish folks running Mm. around with Jesus at that time. Well, great. Um, Guys, what what do y'all have for Chris? Well, go ahead, Melissa. Go ahead. Um, I was just uh, curious uh, if you'd share with us a little bit um, of your thoughts regarding the most pertinent challenges currently facing the United Methodist Church in 2021, and how do you see that uh, currently taking place? There's many challenges, of course, um, but what do you feel like are the uh, most pertinent ones at the moment? Well, thank you for that. I, uh, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago, my answer would have been different. Of course, from today's perspective, I think every church feels like it's facing an existential threat in COVID-19. We're all about gathering people together. You know, my church, the way we, uh, the church I serve, rather, the way we say it is people need Jesus, and we want to draw people to Jesus, develop people in Jesus, and deploy people for Jesus, and gathering is a huge part of that, and that's been disrupted so for the United Methodist Church, uh, we were getting ready. It's, it's almost like a couple that was getting ready to get a divorce and then all of a sudden they get cancer, both of them. And, and so it's mm. almost like, you know, I'm, I, I kind of came up with that analogy in the dark days of COVID, but I, I'm a little more optimistic. <laughs> That's not a very sunny image, but it, it's like a bigger threat has come in than the threat we thought we thought mm. we had. And uh, I don't know all the demographics of the the Western North Carolina Annual Conference, the Illinois Rivers Conference, uh, we have about 800 churches. Uh, only 117 of those have more than 100 people on a weekend before COVID. Uh, 400 of those have 30 or less. Half of that number have 15 or less on a weekend. And so these are churches that have been teetering on the edge of viability for a long time. And uh, so as a, as a denomination that is heavily weighted toward small churches and elderly churches. Uh, we're going to see a lot of that just go away over over time. But uh, beyond the beyond the COVID threat, um, you know, we are in the middle of a uh, negotiation about our our future. About this time last year. Uh, it was announced that a group of high-level leaders from across the spectrum, ideological, all you know, all of that, had agreed on a separation agreement for the United Methodist Church, and they put that in the legislation and got it prepared for what we thought was going to be a May 2020 general conference. Well, of course, we didn't have our global meeting of United Methodists in May 2020. That was rescheduled for August 2021. And now I don't think anybody that really looks at the current reality thinks we're going to have a August full general conference in Minneapolis in 2021 of August. Um, It's just not going to be possible. I mean, the vaccines are getting around, but that's in the U.S. And this is a global, uh, you know, uh, recently uh, new statistics came out that showed that uh, I think American Methodists, United Methodists are a minority. Um, 
across the globe, I think we've been eclipsed by uh, Methodist, United Methodists that live in other countries. So getting everybody, delegates from all these different places together. So, um, you know, we're waiting on the Commission on General Conference who are expecting a report by January 31st on the feasibility of a virtual general conference, maybe a distributed general conference. A lot of these places where the United Methodism is the strongest has not good access to technology. Mm -hmm. So pulling all that off in all the different languages, we translate in all the different languages. And, you know, so we're waiting to see if maybe a limited agenda general conference, a um, something could happen where we could move forward. Right now, we really have this um, kind of open-ended paralysis right now because we're not able to have the meetings we need to have to bring this uh, to final resolution. So I think those are some of the, some of the challenges we're looking at. Uh, the heartbeat of the church is always gonna be the local church though. And so, you know, I always got, even though I'm, I'm probably the last one to say this, but you know, don't focus too much on the big, you know, denominational issues, really focus on the health of your local church and get invested there and serve Jesus there. And all these other things are gonna pretty much work them way, their way out one way or the other. But, um, you know, being invested in your local church, making it strong and viable is, gonna, is really the key that, you know, is gonna be the key for most folks. Can I jump in at this point, Chris? Sorry, Melissa, but you mentioned the uh, proposed, the, the proposal, the agreed upon proposal uh, the, the protocol. And I know we were all set for general conference uh, in May of, of 2020. Uh, where do you think, do you have any reflections on where uh, the, the viability of that protocol um, the stands right now? I, I've been curious to try to reflect on what this extended um, period with COVID has done on us working out um, our situation. Yeah, you know, that, that's a great thing to watch. Is is there some softening support for the protocol, strengthening support for the protocol? Um, you know, when it first came out, um, I think a lot of us looked at that and said, okay, the people in the room are the people that can make something happen, the people that had agreed to this. And they the, the folks that negotiated this all agreed that they would, you know, they each have their individual divisions for United Methodism. We're going to put that aside and we're going to support this separation protocol so we can get that done and then we can move forward. And I, I think that's still the case that there is uh, strong support. Now, there, that doesn't mean the protocol hasn't been questioned. The African bishops came out with a statement saying they think they sh it should be renegotiated. Uh, they didn't have enough representation at the table when that was negotiated. African bishops, like all bishops, don't get a vote at general conference, though. You know, they can speak their mind, but they, uh, they preside over general conference. They don't vote at general conference. Uh, there have been some very small movements of folks that have said, well, maybe this is a time to rethink this a little bit. Um, let's cool down and maybe go to one of the old options like the uh, connectional conference plan or something like that. Uh, but I think those have been small pockets of uh, folks. Uh, some of these bigger structural plans, which I've authored some and have supported some of those and, you know, and 
you know, if you starting from scratch, that would be absolutely the way to go. But I think there's a lot of people that realize that the protocol, because it doesn't require constitutional amendments and ratification and all this other thing is our, our most direct path uh, toward a new future. So I think that's one thing that the, um, that the protocol has going for it is that it's been negotiated, it's been agreed upon by key parties, and it can happen uh, without a long protracted process if general conference can get together and and pass that. So I think I think it's I think it's in place right now, and I think it's it's the leading option for the United Methodist Church. That's good to hear. I I, I agree with you. I think I think the protocol as it was created. Uh, really does offer us a very viable way forward, and um, and and I hope it stands a good good chance of, of helping us out by making it through general conference. Mm -hmm. Assuming we do have a general conference in 2021, what would you highlight as things that our lay people in the local church need to be aware of and? Uh, need to know. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, the first thing is Jesus is Lord. You know, let's start there always. Amen. Uh, you know, we've got we to keep him on the throne. He said he would build his church, not our church. Uh, the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And again, I just want to say the local church is the real story. There, the United Methodist Church is a big global uh, intertwined organization that it's going to take a, a while to untwine if that's what's happening and uh and so to just kind of be patient with that process it's going to take you 10 times longer than what you think it should take uh because things are just exceedingly complicated on the on the general church level but on the local church level uh your church is going to be what your church has always been and uh, you know we may um you know, it used to be that the denomination you were part of was the brand you had to wear on your church sign and, you know, you had the, the, the flag you fly. I think that's less the case. You know, most churches, their denominational affiliation is maybe on page six of their website or something like that, you know. So uh, really, I want to just keep in mind the health of the local church is really important. But there is a new denomination coming. What the separation protocol does is allows... Uh, folks to create a new expression of Methodism, a new Methodist denomination. And the group that has agreed to do that are what we've come to call the traditionalists. Now, uh, United Methodists uh, have been talking to one another a long time about our differences. And, and part of the problem in those discussions have been labeled. If I call myself, uh, if, I, if I don't agree with you and I call myself a Bible believer, I'm kind of calling you a not a Bible believer. So I can't call myself a Bible believer uh, because that's saying you don't believe the Bible and you would take umbrage at that. So uh, you know, what do we call one another? And so uh, uh, evangelicals, that's been a problematic term. Uh, so we've kind of settled on traditionalists. Yeah. And so tradition, what is a traditionalist? A traditionalist is somebody that uh, believes in a high view of scripture and uh, believes, uh, has a certain lens towards the gospel. Uh, kind of the classic, uh, I would say the classic things that drove the ministry of John Wesley. Um, 
And uh, the other side would be more on a progressive side, which would be more aligned with ma mainline U.S. Christianity that has a more flexible view of things like sexual ethics, definition of marriage, that kind of thing. So um, traditionalists, even though uh, we agree with the Book of Discipline in the United Methodist Church and what it says on issues like um, uh, gender identity, marriage, human sexuality, that kind of thing that we've been fighting over. It's been kind of a presenting issue. There's, it's bigger issues than that, but that's been the presenting issue that we've been debating over. Uh, traditionalists have agreed to start a new denomination and be the ones that exit. And uh, the, probably the biggest question we get is why do we have to be the ones that leave? Um, the denominational apparatus in the United States are general agencies. We have 13 general agencies. Um, traditionalists are a demographic majority globally, but a minority in the U.S. context and among the general agencies. And traditionalists generally want to want a less top-heavy denomination. Uh, so we don't want to inherit 13 general agencies and their current staff and all of that. We would rather uh, have a meaner, a leaner, uh, not a meaner church, a leaner church uh, for the future. And so that's, uh, that, that's why the traditionalists have agreed to be the ones that leave. So here's what's going to happen if the protocol passes. Uh, each annual conference can decide if it wants to be part of the uh, post-separation United Methodist Church or the new traditional Methodist Church. I just want to point out those are two oxymorons, post-separation United and new <laughs> traditional. Those are, those are self-contradictory statements, but that's the language we're working with here. Now, the post-separation United Methodist Church will change the definition of marriage to include same-sex marriage and will ordain uh, gay clergy and they will uh, have uh, bishops in same-sex marriage and that, that kind of thing if, you know, uh, kind of a, if a pastor isn't required to do same-sex marriages, but if they want to, they can do that. They'll have more of that kind of understanding. And the new traditional Methodist church will be a new denomination named to be announced. Probably will have Methodist church in the name and, uh, and it will be, a, uh, it will be a, a less top heavy uh, new structure organization to try to match the mission field that we have uh, today. We believe that a lot of the global church will maybe choose the new traditional Methodist church, but that will be their option. You know, the, each annual conference will, if they want to, will have a vote. And the number they have to vote on is 57% to vote themselves in the new denomination. Now, that's just a clear negotiation uh, compromise. You know, when the, we're, they were at the negotiating table, the traditionalists wanted 50%, you know, majority of the annual conference go where they want to. The, uh, the folks that wanted to stay in the post-separation United Methodist Church ought to be, be two-thirds to leave your denomination. So Kenneth Feinberg, it was one of the last things to be negotiated, said, let's split the difference. Let's not walk away from the table. Let's make it 57%. So that, that's what we have. That's what was agreed upon, a 57% vote. Uh, so once your annual conference votes or chooses not to vote, 
if you don't like what was decided on the annual conference level, um, if you like what was decided on the annual conference level, which would be most of the churches theoretically, uh, you don't have to do anything. You just move with your annual conference into the post-separation United Methodist Church or the new traditional Methodist Church. If you don't like the decision that your annual conference made, each local church will have the opportunity to uh, choose to opt in to the new denomination or stay in the post-separation United Methodist Church. If you want to do something different than your annual conference has done, that's who has to have a local church vote. We don't do a lot of all church votes in the United Methodist Church. Maybe if you have a building program, you get all the members together and vote. We don't do that much in our denomination. So that's um, that has a little bit of a a little bit of trepidation around it just because we don't do it very often. And these are very personal issues because it gets tied into human sexuality, marriage, all that. There's a lot of ways for that conversation to go sideways. So uh, hopefully we can avoid that just by loving one another, speaking truth to one another, uh, not disparaging one another. But there'll be a lot of United Methodist churches that will need to work through that process of discerning. And the right question to ask is not, you know, uh, you know, sometimes people think it, the choice is, well, that one group wants to be nice to, to gay folks and one group wants to be mean. That's, that's not it at all. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um, you know, we've got, it, it's different than that. I think everybody involved is very open to everybody and wants to love everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've got United Methodist seminaries having drag shows in their chapel. Uh, when I, when I talk about the you know, the, the, you know, the differences here, we've got some, we've got some folks that a lot, most folks are kind of in the middle, mushy middle somewhere in Methodist. We're, we're a middling denomination, but there's, uh, there's some very strident um, voices uh, in this. And um, there's some folks that just feel like the new Methodist denomination will never be woke enough to, you know, accommodate, all the stuff that, that folks want to get done. So, um, you know, if we don't stand in scripture and uh, in our traditional understanding of, uh, of God's revelation in scripture, where are we going to stand? Uh, and how, can, how are we going to even develop what we do believe? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's going to be the nature of the decision that's going to come possibly to your local church, possibly to my local church, and that we need to start, you know, talking to one another about as um, these new things develop. Now, I, I think uh, the first half of 2021, we're going to see some big announcements about the new denomination, the name of the new denomination, the names of the people that have uh, been contributing to the new denomination, the planning. We're going to see a book of discipline, transitional book of discipline that will govern those joining the new denomination until we can have a convening conference. Uh, so there's gonna be um, kind of a release moment, I think, with all that coming up in the early part of 2021. And that will help us all have this conversation too. So um, that's something that we can all look for and, and look forward to. Yeah, I think Chris, that you know, part of what you're animating there is you know, none of us look forward to our congregations having to make these decisions. But at the same time, uh, that, that degree of messiness 
I think is is inherent in the way that God renews the church. It's always been that way. Yeah. And I think it's just going to be part of the process uh, that on, on many different levels and many different places uh, will we'll, we'll issue forth with a, a renewed Methodism. I'm, 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 you know, I'm on the traditionalist side, but I'm, I'm, I'm praying that the progressives, uh, they can, they, they can create a denomination that is, is more in alignment with what they what they want, what they feel like they need. Uh, I, I, want, I want to um, help them find their way. Um, you know, we got to do something to get beyond this stalemate that really has been almost front and center for most of my ministry, uh, 30 plus years. Absolutely. And we should want, well, we, we should want good things for one another, you know, um, I, I, we see, you know, you and I have both been at general conference. We've seen the frustration. We've seen the anger on both sides and uh, we just need a new day. We need to find a way to bless one another and uh, move forward without vitriol, um, malice toward none, charity for all. Uh, that's the kind of uh, new day that we need in the United Methodist Church. You know, one of my concerns, and you alluded to this too, with the labels, you know, Americans, we seem to love labels and, um, you know, and sometimes labels are not helpful. They do maybe streamline the conversation a little bit, but uh, there's a downside to labels. And I, I particularly try to keep reminding people that labels uh, that, that are used in the political world, liberal, conservative, just don't automatically translate into the, the theological world. And um, yeah, that's, that's why people need to, need to need to be aware and learn and reflect about what's going on absolutely i think their coming days uh invite us to a greater level of discernment and uh time of prayer and engagement with the scriptures going forward good point yeah what martin luther said I'm going to paraphrase him, but when he, during the Reformation, he said, let us each go the way of our own conscience. And uh, we're certainly at that place where we can bless one another uh, and, and respect one another enough. Um, what I've loved about the Methodist Church as a relatively young man, that's rapidly changing for all of us, but um, was that we held grace and truth and tension for so long uh, and, and we're in a culture in a world right now that, that wants to either choose grace or truth and not hold that tension any longer, even though Jesus was the embodiment of both perfectly. Uh, and, and so I don't have a question about that, but I just wanted to make that statement. And what I love about a new Methodist expression is that it would retain that, that holding those two things of grace and truth simultaneously uh, that we see expressed in scripture and in the life of, of course, life of Jesus. Um, there's one thing I wanted to say. Uh, when the protocol came out, I saw a number of bishops uh, sort of giving a frequently asked questions sort of video, which I appreciated. Um, and one of them said, if your annual conference decides to stay post-separation UMC, uh, and your congregation decides to stay post-separation UMC, then nothing will change for your congregation. Uh, they kind of reiterated that. And I remember hearing that and thinking, is that really true? 
will, it, will nothing change for your doctrine, for your polity? Do you think that's the case? Yeah, I, I do not think that is the case. I think every United Methodist is in for a, a season of change. Um, so uh, the, you know, there's the United Methodist Church has been described like a rubber band. We've got these, we've got these sides that are pulling, 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 attentions have, have come. And when you cut that, uh, you don't stay right where you're at. You snap a little bit. Uh, so the post-separation United Methodist Church is, I think everybody understands uh, in very short order, they're going to move to new language around um, human sexuality. They're going to move new language around marriage to allow for uh, same-sex marriage. Um, there may be a post. There may be a liberationist wing of the uh, of the of the Methodists too. I think it'd be very very small, but they don't even want to limit it to two people or have any kind of limits around marriage whatsoever. But I think the post-separation United Methodist Church will will certainly change their stance. And I think it'll go to things like abortion and some of our other, some of the nuance we have now will be lost in the post-separation United Methodist Church. I think also the structures won't work anymore because you're going to have an exodus. And a lot of our annual conferences are teetering on the edge of viability. So you've got a second round of reorganization that's going to go on. All the district maps are going to change. All the um, mm -hmm. annual, I think a lot of the annual conference maps are going to change. Um, you know, uh, here in Illinois, I'm, I'm on the border of the Northern Illinois Conference. It's lost about a third of their people over the last year. Uh, very progressive stance on everything. And uh, they are at the point now where they can't afford their own bishop. They're going to have to go in with another conference. I think Illinois Great Rivers will be two traditional forms, so maybe Wisconsin, or they're looking at, you know, what do they do? I think we're going to see a lot of that go on. So uh, your conference areas will be geographically larger, probably, in the post-separation United Methodist Church. And uh, it will you know, it will be uh, changes that will be realized over a few years, probably, uh, rather than a start fresh and here's what it's going to look like. But I, I think they're in for a season of change. And, uh, you know, a lot of our whole model of ministry is no longer sustainable. If you took schism out of it, if you took COVID out of it, even um, how we've done church as a denomination, we designed 50 years ago. Uh, it's no longer sustainable. Uh, General Board of Global Ministries has been downsizing staff. Uh, there's a uh, what, 20, 30% cut that GCFA is requesting. So business as usual is not an option for any of us. I mean, even under the best circumstances, um, we would not be able to keep doing church like we've been doing church. So all these groups that come out of the United Methodist Church will have to redesign design or redesign themselves for a new reality and one thing i've noticed chris just looking at um the episcopal church in the united states and the anglican communion uh in, in the episcopal church in the united states for those uh bishops and priests who said they would stay with the mainline church but not do same-sex unions um and they thought going into it that was that would be an option with the, the post separation um, Episcopal Church but I think what is happening is uh, that that freedom is not really there 
in the Episcopal Church. We're seeing beginning to see church trials uh, forcing uh, rectors and one particular bishop to um, to bless and sanction same-sex unions if they're still part of the, the mainline Episcopal Church. I've been watching that too. I believe it's Bishop Love uh, who's uh, had to step down as bishop because he would not allow the clergy in his conference to do, you know, he thought it was more of the one church plan kind of model. If, if a, you want to allow it in your diocese, you can, but if you don't want to, you don't have to. But now he, he was brought up on charges and I wish I could remember who the, to attribute this quote to, but where orthodoxy is optional, orthodoxy will sooner or later be forbidden. Mm. Uh, I think that's true. So I, I think that's something we all need to keep an eye on. Yeah, for any lay people listening, there are a lot of lessons learned from the Episcopal Church that the Methodist Church is wisely trying to avoid uh, through this protocol. Um, for many years, the Episcopal Church has been suing congregations that left their denomination, suing them for their property, uh, and suing over empty buildings, spending millions of dollars to, re to get a piece of property that no one was using anymore. And that's one of the benefits of the protocols that it, it would help us um, retain a lot of our property. Say for example, if our West North Carolina conference decided to stay post-separation and not traditionalist, and a local congregation disagreed with that and wanted to go traditionalist, they would be able to retain their property. Is that correct, Chris? Yes. Um, Right now, every United Methodist property is tied to the denomination through something called a trust clause. And that means that if uh, your local church ceases to be a place of United Methodist ministry, that property reverts to the annual United Methodist annual conference. And that has uh, stuck in the craw of uh, a lot of United Methodist laity because, of course, the local church pays for the as you know, there hasn't been denominational money that's paid for these buildings. It's been local churches that have raised the money and built these buildings. You know, the, uh, the trust clause actually started to protect theological integrity. Uh, John Wesley's name was on the deed of the Methodist meeting house because there was a Calvinist branch of uh, kind of the Whitfieldian branch of the Methodist revival and didn't want them taking over uh, these Methodist meeting houses that John Wesley and his group had paid for. So, uh, he put his name on the deed and said, this is for the teaching of the gospel as found in the notes on the New Testament and the sermons of John Wesley. So that's kind of carried down. When John Wesley died, that translated to uh, annual conferences. But of course, the irony of the trust clause is where it was used to be protecting our theology. Now it's locking churches in a pluralistic denomination that doesn't want you to, in. Uh, I'm probably overstating that, but it's locking you into a pluralistic denomination that's not so concerned about theology. So uh, part of the separation protocol is that um, the property will pass to the new denomination. The new denomination intends to release uh, local churches from the trust clause. And uh, so part of the DNA of the new traditional denomination is it won't be a community of the constrained. It'll be a community of the committed. Uh, we, you know, I think there's almost unanimous agreement that the trust clause is something that's not served as well. It, it's, it's kept us together, but 
in kind of this artificial unity that we've been experiencing that's about the institution and not about the movement. And uh, of course, um, you run the risk of losing churches, you know, churches going independent, that kind of thing, when you don't have a trust clause. But the alternative is to lock them somewhere they don't want to be. And that's not very healthy either. So um, I think there's better ways to keep churches together, which is reinforce our doctrine, reinforce our, our mission, and make it about that, not about, hey, you have to you legally have to be here. So, um, you know, if a marriage is uh, thinking about the, the legal, legal requirements every day, that's not a very good marriage. Uh, a, a good marriage is thinking about the covenant and what we're about as a couple and why we love one another and that kind of thing, and not about the, the legal uh, side of marriage. One of the things I learned, Chris, uh, particularly as I served as a district superintendent, is you're, you're exactly right. A lot of our, a lot of our congregations, a lot of the people in our congregations, aren't aware of that trust clause that would cause their buildings to go to the conference if they chose to, to leave the conference, and uh, e even even their uh, assets. Uh, we're in a setting where we're blessed with some great endowments. But both the building and the assets would go to the would go to the conference if the congregation decided to do something else. And I've, I've and I'm happy to hear what you say said because I've always been a, I've been of the impression in recent years that the new iteration of Methodism will, will return uh, that power over their assets and their buildings uh, to the local congregation. Uh, not the, the trust calls did serve as well early in our history but it has not served as well in recent in recent history yeah and eliminating it i mean frankly is really complicated i'm, I'm kind of writing about that right now and i'll maybe have a post about that because um it's not just you know when a couple divorces uh they walk away from one another but then there's still debts that the household has that need to be addressed and that's the way it is with the united methodist church we our debts are in the form of unfunded pension liability. The annual conferences of the United Methodist Church are planned sponsors of pensions, and that's created a liability um, depending that, that kind of fluctuates depending on a lot of factors. Uh, and sometimes there's, there's a risk involved in that. And so if markets and interest rates do certain things, uh, cash infusion is needed. So, um, you know, what the new denomination can't do is just say, okay, uh, you're free from your trust clause, leave if you want to. So we can't have churches join just to wash themselves free of the trust clause and the unfunded pension liability, which the new denomination is going to be assuming. Um, you know, the you know, if church wants out of the denomination right now, there are ways out. And basically you have to pay a share assigned by your annual conference of their unfunded liability. A church in Indiana, they wanted out early. Their pastor, um, uh, Mark Beeson, their founding pastor, largest church in the Indiana conference, um, you know, needed to get out earlier because their pastor was dying of pancreatic cancer and they really wanted to control the success, their own succession of who their next pastor was going to be. So they bought out, I think it was 2.6 million. Over a million of that was um, pension issues, that kind of thing. 
So in the new denomination, um, the plan right now is that there would be a lien against local church property for those that have a liability. Not everybody maybe will have a liability, but if there is a fair share amount, uh, there'd be a lien. And then as long as you're staying in the denomination, the denomination will handle that liability together as you go through time. But if you want out, uh, if there is an unfunded portion that you're responsible for based on your history of your annual conference. Uh, I'm still learning all the details of this because it, when I say that it's complicated to take apart the United Methodist Church, this is the nitty gritty that I think mm -hmm. we're all going to become acquainted with in 2021. Uh, all this, all this pension stuff and line, the promises we've made to people and that we're going to have to find a way to keep uh, in somehow, some way. I think this is going to be part of the nitty gritty, but um, but, but there is a concerted will on the part of traditionalists not to have the trust clause as part of the future. And we're doing a lot of creative thinking about how to unwind that. Yeah, let's, let's uh, I think it's a, what, everything we discussed is so vitally important for Methodists to know about. So I'm so glad we're laying this out there. Um, but let's also talk about the future. We are hinting at the future here and there in our conversation today. Um, uh, you, as we said earlier, Chris, you're part of the um, WCA Council. We had a wonderful conversation last month with Carolyn Moore, who, as of the day before our conversation, became the chair of that council, and she announced that um, on our conversation that day. So that was kind of a fun thing to hear about. Yeah. Um, and maybe let's just briefly talk about how the WCA, the Western Covenant Association, as Carolyn articulated, that it's really um, the midwife for uh, a new expression of Methodism in the future. Um, and there's also a transitional leadership council that has been formed to help uh, with that transition as a midwife role. Can you just talk a little bit about that so people are a bit more informed? Absolutely. I, I think you know, I've been part of the Wesley Covenant Association since its beginning. There were some early meetings uh, coming out of General Conference 2016 that I got invited to and been part of that. It's just a, a gathering point for those, those that are on the traditional side of this conversation to be in communion with one another, connection with one another, think about the future together. Originally founded to guide the United Methodist Church and of course now that we've gone through General Conference 2019, I've seen the fallout of that. Uh, I think we realize now that the Wesley Covenant Association has a role in shaping a new denomination for the future. But you know, there are traditionalists are a diverse lot. I mean, um, national, a lot of nationalities, a lot of spoken languages. Uh, you know, in fact, all the almost all the diversity in the United Methodist Church is on the traditional side. When you think about language diversity, economic diversity with our brothers and sisters in Africa, uh, and, and there's, a lot, there's a lot of differences. You know, we have high church folks that, you know, uh, worship seems like, you go to their Sunday morning, it seems like you're at a high Anglican mass, and we've got churches that you'd think you'd stepped into maybe an Assembly of God church uh, on a Sunday morning. You know, it, there's a lot of diversity on the traditional side, but there's something that holds us together, and that's a, an understanding of the gospel, a common understanding of the gospel, the sources of authority, 
in the Christian life. And that's, that's, that's what's been the, the coalescing of the, of the Wesley Covenant Association. And we realized when it came time to look seriously at forming a new denomination that there have been some that have been with us from the beginning and there have been some that never joined with us. And, uh, but deserve a voice in the future. And so um, we had a, a larger meeting and I wasn't at that meeting, but a larger meeting last December, a year ago, December, uh, with some of those folks that have not been part of the WCA, but wanted to be part of a new denomination. This included some bishops. And so um, the midwife part of this is the Wesley Covenant Association uh, gave our blessing and participation to something called the Transitional Leadership Council, which basically widened the, widened the tent to include um, a lot of different traditionalists, whether they've been part of Wesley Covenant Association or not. And I'd say the Transitional Leadership Council that's been meeting now for over a year is uh, the main voice in shaping what the new denomination is gonna look like. Keith Boyette is the president of the Wesley Covenant Association. He's also the chair of this Transitional Leadership Council. And, uh, you know, when we started uh, planning for a denomination at, on WCA, we got a lot of task forces together and, you know, I, I led the group on what would Episcopacy look like? What, do we want to have bishops in the new denomination? How would those bishops be different? So um, we put all those ideas into something called a Book of Doctrines and Disciplines. It's a draft that will one day be presented, that work will be presented to a convening conference of a new denomination for the delegates to that new conference to, to uh, look at. And so uh, I'm pretty familiar with the bishops part of that, the episcopacy part of that. Uh, we'd like to have a term limited episcopacy where you're a bishop, you're not a bishop for life. That matches our ordination. You know, you're not ordained bishop, you're consecrated as a bishop. And so it's a role that you have for a while, but uh, we don't feel like maybe the United Methodist Church has been well served by having a different class of clergy um, almost uh, in our bishops. Uh, we think bishops ought to have the endorsement of the whole denomination at general conference uh, rather than be elected by these pockets. You know, we've had jurisdictions now that elect their bishops are paid by the general church. They're held accountable in their little fiefdoms. And so that's led us to theological disharmony and all kinds of things. So um, the new doctrine and discipline says that there's a list of a clergy that get recommended for bishop uh, at general conference. You have to get endorsed at general conference. And then you can be called as bishop by an annual conference to serve, um, you know, for a period of time. So ideas like that. And so the, that's something that the Wesley Covenant Association has produced. Um, the Transitional Leadership Council has, is getting ready to release a transitional book of discipline, which a way to think about that is more of a, uh, a streamlined version of the current book of discipline that will guide um, the church at, as we await a general conference, which will probably come in late 2022, early 2023, because the protocols got to get passed, annual conferences have to vote, and a local church will be waiting on its annual conference often. You know, some churches are in an annual conference, you know where they're going to go, but, uh, but some there's doubt, so you want to, some will need to wait for their annual conference to vote. 
then the local church will have to decide whether they want to vote. Of course, we're a global church and overseas, all of these things are going to have to happen around the world. So it's going to take a while to see who wants to join the new denomination so that they can have select representatives to come to a convening conference to actually uh, govern the church legislatively. So there needs to be a book of discipline before the book of discipline that gets selected. And that's, that's the transitional book of discipline. So the new denomination will, will come into existence, uh, I trust, in 2021 as a legal entity and churches will be able to join it. Um, but it's going to be quite a process to get to a convening conference. So there's, there's two books of discipline right now in the works. One is to guide that interim period, and another is a draft suggestions to the general conference, the convening general conference of the new denomination. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Your intellect on this stuff just blows my mind. That it, some people are just called to um, to to do what you're doing. Those people are called nerds, and uh, and <laughs> no, I no no no. The more <laughs> the more accurate term is metho nerd. Oh, metho nerd. Yeah, yeah. I'm afraid that that description fits me. <laughs> when when I've been at general conference, Chris, I've always taken great great comfort uh, in knowing that there's somebody out there that can work out the details. Uh, that, that but it's not you. That, there's, a, there's a comfort in knowing it's not. The, the, the times I've been nervous is when I've been in rooms where it's like I knew something that maybe everybody didn't seem to know, and I was like, I, I do not want to be the smartest person. In there. And I'm, and I, there's never been that's never been the case. That's always been a that's always been a temporary uh, delusion on my part. But uh, we do have some great minds uh, playing the new denomination. Some great bishops. And, um, you know, Keith Boyette uh, is uniquely qualified for this uh, season. Uh, God prepared him as an attorney before he went into ministry. And so uh, I think in God's providence, I don't know how the will of God works in all this, and it's a mystery, but it's part of God's providential care is Keith having a legal background and a church background that can bring all these things together to help us plan a new future. He's been an invaluable resource in all of this. I got an email from him this morning. It was this long on some issues and he's, he's just incredible. Yeah, I'm so grateful for people like you and Keith. And uh, one of the things I've noticed uh, because we have uh, had conversations with David Haight, with David Watson and with um, Carolyn Moore and, and now you, uh, and all of these have um, uh, been very, very positive conversations hope-filled conversations. Um, that's what I keep encouraging people to listen to these conversations because uh, it could also be a frightening, ominous time right now uh, because we are kind of sailing through some uncharted territory, but it really is an exciting, hope-filled time. It is. And some of my hopes, you know, in the new church is that um, we will be able to rededicate ourselves to outward mission. You know, right now we have a lot of energy focused inward right now because we're fighting with one another. And, uh, you know, we're, we're all our energy is is inside the, the church right now. What if we had a group of people that agree together on the basics of the faith? We'll always disagree on different things. And the church is always, you know, you go back to to 
Ephesus and Philippi and Corinth, I mean, this is nothing new. I mean, basically, Paul wrote his letters because Christians weren't getting along, didn't have didn't have their mind on on the on the mission that they should. So, you know, I don't think we need any magical thinking that somehow we're going to have just uh, the age of Aquarius come in or something. You know, that we're all just going to be kumbaya from here on out and. You know, and we're just going to be building eight churches a day and, you know, all that. You know, I think we need a good dose of realism. But I think there is tremendous hope in the idea that um, we can we can have a like minded denomination that has a common vision of the Christian faith. You know, right now what we're doing is we're trying to have a denomination with its mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ. And we don't agree on what a disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. That does not work. That will will never work. So we're trying to get to the point of at least having unity around the big things. You know, John Wesley said, you know, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And so uh, we're trying to get a church that can agree together on the essentials, and uh, move forward in mission. And that excites me. When I've been to a gathering, like the one in North Carolina that I got a chance to be with you folks, uh, it's just a good feeling in the room to know that um, um, we love and serve the same uh, Jesus, that we uh, proclaim the same gospel, and we're all trying to move toward the same aims. And that's what we're trying to get to uh, in a new Methodist denomination. Well, thank you, Chris, for your time. Uh, this has been a really, really good conversation. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it. Um, so God bless you and your work and your ministry. And uh, we just so appreciate you and your witness. If you're listening, go right now, except if you're driving a car, go right now to peopleneedjesus.net and read it for hours and hours. Uh, it's, it'll, it'll bless you and it'll help you understand a bit more of the lay of the land of where we are and where we could be going. So Chris, thank you again. We appreciate you, man. Um, Great. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Can I ask a blessing on your, on your church uh, before I go? I would love that. Lord God, I thank you for these pastors. They love their people. They, they love the congregation that you've called them to serve. And we thank you for the lighthouse that your church is, Lord, in their, in their community, in their world. Uh, just ask God that you would be speaking and guiding and directing. Send your Holy Spirit in power and clarity uh, upon um, your servants, Lord, that they may be filled with your joy and power, that we'd not be afraid of the future, Lord, we'd be confident because, Lord, you're the, you're the Lord of the church. And you said you would build your church. The gates of hell would not prevail against it. Um, I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of uh, being with my friends today. And uh, we give you all the glory in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Appreciate it, man. Yep. Thank Thank you. you so much.